Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Travelers often ask me about emerging destinations in Europe. They want a rich cultural scene, warm welcome, no crowds, and a place where their dollar might stretch a little further. I usually say, look east. And on today's edition of Travel with Rick Steves, we're doing just that. Three of my tour guide friends from Eastern Europe join us to promote the distinctive appeal of their home countries. In true American fashion, we'll let them compete for your business as we learn more about tourism in Hungary, the Czech Republic, and Slovenia. And then, for even more travel thrills, we'll travel to eastern Turkey. Most tourists stick to Istanbul and the cruise ports and resorts in western Turkey. But we're heading east, where surviving caravanserais evoke stories of the Silk Road, where the village economy seems to be little more than hay, dung, and ducks, and where the favorite family festival celebrates a circumcision. They call it a wedding without the in-laws. We're looking east today, and I'm glad you can come along. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we venture to the eastern frontiers in the European Union and eastern Turkey. Three of my tour guide friends will join us in a moment to talk about their home countries, places with an old Habsburg heritage, with an overlooked charm and an underappreciated value. And later in the hour, Meli Saval introduces us to eastern Turkey. Visitors to Turkey rarely venture past the popular tourist enclaves in the country's western half. Meli will take us to the eastern edge of Turkey, where you'll find nomads grazing goats in the shadow of Mount Ararat, a persistent and proud Kurdish culture, and evocative memories of the Silk Road. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And today, we're going to sort through some of the complexities of what we call Eastern Europe. It's actually Central Europe, and it's the New Europe. And we've got friends with us from Hungary, the Czech Republic, and Slovenia. And for a lot of Americans, it's tough to even find Slovenia on the map. Is that Slovakia or Slovenia or Slavonia? When you live there and when you travel there, you find there are wonderful and intimate differences between these countries, and it can be overwhelming for travelers, it can be confusing for travelers, but when we can uh, grapple with these changes and sort it out, our travels become much more meaningful, and we come home, obviously, with a much better understanding of the complexities of the demographic makeup and the ethnic makeup of Europe. So today I have three friends and tour guides from these three different countries. I have Marian Kriskovic from Slovenia, Lavante Naj from Hungary, and Hansa Vihan from Czech Republic. Uh, thank you guys for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having now, us. Now, uh, just for a welcome, let me just ta- let you say hello to people. Uh, give me a couple words in your language and tell me in a couple of sentences about your country. Let's start in the south with uh, with Marian. Slovenia in And what did you say? Greetings from Slovenia and have a nice day. All right, and Levante from Hungary. Üdvözöljük Magyarországon. Reméljük, hogy visszajön hamarosan. Which is, uh, welcome to Hungary, hope to see you again. All right, and Hansa from Czech Republic. Vítám vás Praze, přijďte zase. Welcome to Prague, come again. Now what we heard, we heard two different um, Slavic languages and one language that's like, where did it come from, <laughs> right? Levante, tell me about the, the linguistic uh, relations here. Okay, um, Hungarian is part of the Finno-Ugoric uh, language family. We're closely related to Estonian and Finnish. And so we, even though we're surrounded by Slavs and Slavic languages, so we have our own very distinct language. What's that like for you uh, Finno-Ugric people, you Magyars who came mm-hmm. from like Mongolia right. 1,200 years ago? Right. What's that like? You're surrounded by Slavs. Oh, these guys tease us all the time because we don't look Mongolian, but we sound different. It's, it's fun to have a language that's not related to anything nearby. And this is how we... Uh, very quickly catch the spies because nobody ever is able to completely master this weird language. So you can just ask somebody to speak just Hungarian and you know if they're native or not. That's right. Ha! Hansa, has a spy from Czech Republic ever been able to master <laughs> Hungarian? <laughs> I gave up on it after one or two tries. So when I'm in Budapest, I always like to go to the working class canteens. There aren't any different menus. So my favorite thing in Budapest, because you can't go wrong with food in Hungary, so I, anywhere I go, I just I just point on the menu and uh, whatever arrives, that's it. That's so there's a, a Czech man saying you can't go wrong with the menu in Hungary. So the Czech people appreciate the Hungarian cuisine. Everyone in Central Europe knows that the Hungarian cuisine is the best in our region. Is that right? 
And uh, Marjan from uh, Slovenia, what, what do you appreciate about Hungary? Well, food is definitely one of the things. I mean, in Slovenia, we try to incorporate as much as possible from it as well. So uh, we definitely appreciate that. And, of course, a lot of other aspects of Hungarian culture, too. So Hungarian is more mixed up and spicy, paprika. It's just more more oh, interesting than, than the, so, yeah. uh, the Slavic food. To me, it's, um, it's very much like southern cuisine of the U.S. mixed with Mexican. A lot of sour cream and... Pepper, hot pepper. Levante from Hungary. When you think of Czech Republic and you're going to visit Hans, beer, 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 <laughs> beer. Is, so that's Hungary is wine and, and Czech Republic is beer. Correct. So, I think there's no match for Czech beer. What about Pilsner? And, now, Slovenia is the little country. You're sort of like the, the tiny little cousin. When you uh, Czech and Hungarian people think of Slovenia, what do you think about? Wonderful, wonderful people. I love the Slovenes. They're just open, smart, very intelligent, very uh, integrated in the rest of Europe. Great skiing, beautiful landscape. Really? Yes. More wonderful people than the Czechs. Oh, no, I didn't say that. Oh, yeah. And Hansa, what do you think from Czech? Uh, from going to Slovenia, I, th- I always saw the nature in Slovenia was was amazing. And just this last summer, I found out what I didn't quite notice openly, and that was the unique way that the Slovenes take care of their forests. Because everywhere else in Europe, the way most of the forests you see in Europe has been planted. And when you uh, need to harvest the trees, you just cut them down in a big patch. That's how you do it, and that's how the Austrians have been doing it all over Central Europe. And Slovenes have actually fought against the Austrians for the right to be able not to make these big clearances, but they always only cut the biggest tree in the forest and keep the forest uh, alive. So that's what is unique in Slovenia of every, anywhere in Europe, and that's why their forests are the most beautiful in Europe. Marian, you're nodding proudly from Slovenia. That's right. Supporting nature rather than fighting it. And so doing the Austrian thing in Slovenia would be illegal. So, in fact, more than half of the surface of the country are forests, and it's the second greenest country in Europe. Is that right? Slovenia. There's a lot of pride in Slovenia. And, oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> and understandably so. I remember going through Slovenia when Yugoslavia was breaking up, and uh, the Slovenes were really the lucky ones. They got out of the Yugoslavian problem uh, almost unscathed, almost with no bloodshed, I believe. But there was a, it was still a courageous battle to be the first to break off. Yes, it was very fortunate. I would say that it took a lot of courage from the people who took part in the events in '91 uh, that proved that the Slovenians would be able to put up a resistance and that eventually scared away any kind of invaders. Who's got the best economy right now of your three countries? I'd say Slovenia. Uh, it's hard to say who has the best economy because a lot of it has to do with uh, more the past than the present. So I would say that Slovenia and the Czech Republic have the strongest past, and because of that, they have the strongest economy. But when so it comes... Czech Republic had the best industry before the communist before, before the communist uh, Before the communist time, and Slovenia in many ways too, because we are part of the western part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But if you ask me which country is doing economically best in Eastern Europe, at the moment it's Estonia because they had the one of the worst starts, but they were able to go ahead with some unpopular reforms, fiscal policy. So within a few years, Estonia is actually going to be the country with the best economy in Eastern Europe. It's just booming. It's very exciting. When you think uh, you're from Hungary, Czech Republic, Slovenia, what is the greatest challenge that was left to you by your communist decades that you're dealing with today? Start with uh, Marian in Slovenia. For Slovenians, a lot of people don't look back at that period as necessarily something negative. Breaking away from the common country was a necessity at the given time and the given circumstances. But people still look fondly at the time when we were part of a larger Slavic Union and still trying to nurture a lot of that heritage and the connections to the countries that we used to uh, share our state together. And that's a common misperception from the American point of view that everybody goes, thank God we're no longer communists. But there's some positive thoughts about those days. And and a lot of countries are trying to keep the best of that past and and factor in the best of what can be ahead. That's right. And in case of Slovenia, actually, in fact, very effective uh, social system, health care, welfare, and so on, and incorporated, of course, successfully into the market economy, trying to take the best of the two worlds, what actually is to be part of the Yugoslav Congress. So Slovenia is kind of a relative utopia because it's uh, not very, it's quite sparsely, how many many people in Slovenia? 
We almost made it up to two million, but unfortunately, it's apparently it's never going to happen. So you're almost two million. You're you're a blessed little part of former Yugoslavia, rubbing up against Austria just on the south side of the Alps, and you have a sensitivity for the environment. You want to keep the good things from the social aspect of socialism, and you want to go with the reality that capitalism keeps the economy churning for everybody. So that's interesting. Levante from Hungary, what's the challenge that you're dealing with from your communist days? I think that the biggest challenge that Hungary faces these days is the lack of work ethics that was ingrained um, in the minds of Hungarians over the 40 years of uh, socialism, communism, whatever you want to call it. There's a generation that, uh, lack of a better way to, to say it, need to die out or retire because these people were just never learned how to actually work and be productive because everything was catered to them. I think that's a big challenge. And the young generation gets capitalism. They understand that capitalism rewards the innovative and the ones who want to become more productive than others. And so I see that uh, Hungary is going to actually find a way out of it. But right now, it's, mm. uh, it, it's, there's a lot of pettiness going on. And the socialist mindset, unfortunately, still prevails in the older generation. And that slows things down. So a huge work ethic generation gap from people who grew up under communism when there was really no reason to work hard. I remember taking uh, little minibus tours into Hungary, and I was just, as a tour guide, you know, scrambling, doing things on the fly. I, people respond to money. And I came into Lake Balaton, and I said, I have nine people on my bus. I need, I need beds. I'll pay you anything. And people looked at me like, eh, go, go somewhere else. I'm, I'm just not in the mood to rent your room right now. There were rooms. And I just thought... Wow, it really made me thankful that we have the profit motive, at least, to get yeah. people off of their stool and over to help you out. That's a mindset. It needs to go. And it's and, going away. And a lot of Western Europeans graciously and generously took in Eastern Europeans, uh, you know, in the last decade to, to work. And, and it was very difficult for them because they got a lot of people whose work ethic just didn't fit the needs of the hotels and so on in Germany or France. Hansa, in Czech Republic, what's the biggest challenge that your society is facing? It's the black and white thinking. It was something through the communist era and which uh, hangs over now today as well was that most people either were for or were against. And when I was growing up, we always listened to Radio Free Europe or Voice of America. And uh, everything that was said that was right. And everything the communist side was wrong. And uh, I think that's something that became ingrained deeply in the generations growing up in that time. The way you see it today is that people, again, are saying communism was bad and uh, those people are bad. That is bad and that is good. They behave and they think that actually they're right, that uh, mm. that kind of a sense of I'm right and this is how, uh, how things are makes it very difficult to debate anything with people from the older generation because there is not the willingness to accept that each of us is a different paradigm. It's a very, uh, it's not black and white. So this is something I'm, I would imagine all of the former Warsaw Pact is working with. Marian, Lavente, and Hansa are here to take your calls as they pitch travel to their home countries. 877-333-RICK. That's our phone number and radio at ricksteves.com is our email address. Thanks for joining us on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
It's a steady eastward wind today on Travel with Rick Steves. A little later in the hour, we'll head for eastern Turkey and explore the traditional scene where few who visit Turkey dare to venture. Right now, we're comparing some of the countries of Eastern Europe. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number, 877-333-RICK, or email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. I am having fun right now because I've got three friends from the Czech Republic, from Hungary, and from Slovenia, and we're actually uh, competing for your loyalty as a traveler. I've got uh, Levantinaj from Hungary, Hansevihan from Czech Republic, and Marian Kriskovic from Slovenia. How do you say your name, Marianne? Uh, Marian Kriskovic. And we've got people calling us up, and uh, right now we're going to assume people really have not enough time to enjoy all of your countries, and you guys are going to, it's going to be compete for the tourist dollar, okay? So we're going to talk to these uh, travelers and, and get them to come to, to your country. I hope we have Linda on the line in uh, Ridgefield, Washington. Hi, Linda. Hi. Oh, do you have a question for our, our travelers? Well, actually, yeah. We have a four-week trip planned this spring, March and April, and we'll be traveling with three of our big boys. And we have never, this is my third time to Europe, but I've never done the Eastern countries, and we're either debating possibly going to the Netherlands or going into the Czech Republic and into Poland and Slovenia and down through. And I just um, want to know what makes, you know, your country special as far as traveling and traveling with a larger group like that. Well, how old are your big boys? Well, uh, they're 18, 20, and 25. Okay, let's talk about the the fun for uh, young adults in, in your countries. Uh, if you had some friends that age coming in and having a good time in your country. Sure. Uh, this is Leventa from Hungary. Uh, Linda, are your children listening? No, okay. I have two boys in Bible school over there okay. right now, and we're oh, picking them up. Because I was just going to suggest that uh, they should lose you in Hungary and just uh, walk without you all over the place. It's a very romantic city. And they can stay out late. There are lots of bars. They don't have to drive. It's a fantastic city. They can flirt with the local beautiful Hungarian girls Mm -hmm. uh, while you're not there. I'm just teasing you. There's a lot to do. You can take uh, boat cruises on the Danube, see museums together, hang out at a beautiful island uh, in the middle of the city. A lot of activities for every age group. The islands in the middle of the uh, Danube River in Budapest really are sort of a summer playground, aren't they? It is a summer playground. Uh, you can jog around, rent bikes. It's a family fun activity center. Well, let's, what about these beautiful girls? If you guys were single guys, uh, 20 years old, in your different countries, where would a traveler meet the, the local girls? Or do the local girls even want to meet, you know, American travelers? I think one of the places would be maybe a local cafe, especially in Central Europe. Uh, we still nurture our cafe culture in the summertime. As soon as it gets a bit warmer out of winter, people flock out to the streets, to the terraces, you know, to uh, to the promenades. And even during working days and working hours, uh, it's full of uh, young people who go there, you know, put on their best and see and be seen kind of policies. And I'm looking at each of you remembering uh, visiting with you in your towns. There, 100 years ago, they were all Habsburg provincial capitals or mm-hmm. at a minimum. And uh, the cafe culture, just like in Vienna, very important still. Yeah, still alive and kicking. Yeah, I think one thing I'd like to mention uh, to Linda is that she was mentioning it's either uh, Holland or uh, Central Europe. Um, Central Europe is much more affordable. So mm-hmm. you get uh, much more mileage for your gas, so to speak. Sure. Good luck, Linda. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Jack in White Bear, White Bear Lake, Minnesota. Hi, Jack. Well, hello. How are you doing? I'm doing just fine. The question I had was just how easy is it as a tourist going through your countries alone, you know, myself and my wife, without being in a group? In other words, not being with a tour group. I've done that in Germany. It's very easy to do in Germany. Is it that easy in your countries? It is as easy as it is in Germany. In all three of these countries, if you approach any person below 30 on the street, they're most likely to speak English. So even in the small towns, not just in the capitals. It's interesting, almost um, counterintuitive for a lot of us, that the language barrier would be less in your countries than in Germany or France or Italy, I think, because in, in your countries you've got to speak English to have an opening onto the West. Yes, and, and also I think these are very safe countries. You don't have to worry about being robbed or mugged. Safe or countries from violent uh, violence, crime point of view. Yes, what yes. are the major pitfalls you would have from a, a law and order point of view? What, what do you need to be careful about? Pickpockets on subways. That's in Budapest and Hungary you're yes, talking about, that's right. uh, Hansa? 
if you are in a big city like Prague or Budapest, make sure uh, you check your bill. People might try funny things at you. So tourists so, are more likely to be ripped off in a restaurant or something because they figure they're clueless when it comes to the money. Exactly. Who's on the euro right now? Slovenia, of course. Slovenia just <laughs> joined the euro. Hungary? Not yet. Not, not yet. yet. When do you plan to be on the euro? Um, they keep postponing it. And actually, you know what? I, I don't mind that. I want these guys to... Uh, Figure out all the all the kinks and work them out, and then Get the by the time straightened they straightened yes, by the time they figure out how everything works, hungry, we just roll right in. So until then, you're in Florence. That's right. And Hansa, whether you join euro or not is a uh, question of how you manage your fiscal policy as the government. Both Czech Republic and Hungary have governments who have decided that it's better to spend money like if it's no tomorrow. Because of that, they will never meet the criteria for the euro. So is, it, is it politically expedient in the it, short term it is, to it spend It is politically money? expedient. Hmm. And, uh, that can happen in the, my country too. In the Czech Republic, it's also an issue of political independence that the party which is in power currently uh, thinks that the moment you have euro, you lose control over, uh, over your Monetary own currency. And then actually you don't have the tools of helping your economy. And uh, so I think in both Czech Republic and Hungary, there is actually currently no plan to actually get on the euro. All of you have worked so hard to get independent. And it's sort of ironic. As soon as you get independent, you then work to lose your independence by joining Europe. So that is an interesting issue. Jack, any other comments or questions? No, I, I really appreciate having me on. Uh, those are good comments. You answered the questions I was looking for. Good. Well, good luck on your trip. Thank you. Thanks for your call. And we have Glenn in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin. Hi, Glenn. Hi, Rick. We're going to be going to that part of the world, and there's going to be about 10 of us. We wanted to get out of some of the big cities, so i got really two questions. One is um, we're planning on getting an East Rail Pass, and maybe you can tell me a little bit about the rail passes. And the second thing is if we get out of the big cities, we're looking at a place outside of Budapest called Eger, E-G-E-R, and a place south of Prague called Tabor. And I wonder if your guests could comment about those regions. Very good. Uh, too many people just go to the big cities. And even this conversation, I'm thinking Ljubljana in Slovenia, Budapest in Hungary, Prague in Czech Republic. But let's remind people this is a great idea that we use those great cities as springboards to really get outside of town. Levante, what about going out to Eger, uh, east of Budapest in Hungary? Yes, it's about an hour from Budapest. It's a charming provincial town, uh, very historic. That's when we held back the Turks. There's a beautiful minaret in the middle of the town, uh, dates back to the 1600s, and it's a very charming little place. You can't really get lost. Lots of great restaurants. Uh, I very highly recommend it. When you look at that minaret, it really symbolizes to me the colossal battle between the big civilizations, the Islam and Christendom, basically, and got all the way to Eger. Is that the like westernmost minaret or something? It like is this? northern, northernmost uh, minaret for sure. And that really is how far the Muslims came. And that was what five hundred years ago. When was yeah, sixteen hundreds, sixteen hundreds. And then right next to that, there's a, a dramatic statue of these uh, heroic Hungarians. That's right. That's I just love it. And you look at those people with their big mustaches, and they look like your language sounds to me. Yes, I understand that's a real wine region too. Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. In fact, we always take our our tour members down to uh, some of the wine cellars or vineyards nearby. You're going to enjoy it. You're going to have a lot of fun. Uh, Make sure that you don't drive. All right. And now let's move over to Czech Republic. Tabor. 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 Is there any particular reason why you chose Tabor over other towns? Uh, It has a connection to my family. My family is from that region, from Trebon. Trebon. Okay. Both Trebon and Tabor are great places to visit. I was there with Rick this summer in Trebon, in fact. Both of these places are best known for their fish industry, in fact. They're beautiful ponds that are man-made and uh, were about 500 years old, those ponds. It's an interesting region to see how, over the centuries, uh, man in the Czech Republic has created the landscape and uh, done it in a way that it fits with nature. Another special thing about Tabor is that it's the site of Hussites, the famous Hussites that uh, fought off a couple crusades in the 1400s. It's a medieval town, and under the whole town there's tunnels that once used to help uh, with the protection of the town, and uh, it's a fun thing to go into. Were these Hussites Protestants? Is that the idea? They were not exactly. It was before they were Protestants. They thought they were the Catholics. 
They, they thought they were, were they were the Catholics, while the other people were not the Catholics. Oh, so they they improved on Catholicism. It was a, exactly. It was not a going away from Catholicism. It was like so. And then they, they got they in trouble the from the Catholics. Pope and all the people who weren't Catholics. Exactly. So there's a fascinating and rich history in these small towns, and it's kind of a fragile little tourist infrastructure. There's not a lot of tourism there, and you won't find the big resources you might be accustomed to, but it really is uh, an exciting uh, opportunity. You will find small hotels. Tabor is on the line to Trebon. Get off the train, then go to Trebon. The train service is pretty good in, in that it's, neighborhood. It's pretty good. It's on the main uh, north-south train line. Let's go over to Slovenia here, just so we give Slovenia a chance. Is there anything okay. worth seeing outside of the capital city there, Marjan? Oh, definitely. If we, if we start with the capital city itself, it's got less than 300,000 people. So there aren't any major cities in uh, Slovenia, but a lot of beautiful countryside, small historical towns to explore, natural sites that range anywhere from uh, alpine resorts down to uh, Venetian coastal towns all within an hour. So a lot of small places to choose from and a lot to offer. In an hour, you can be up in an alpine uh, resort. In an hour, you can be at a Slavic Mediterranean resort. <laughs> in an hour, you can be in these huge caves. So there's plenty to see in Slovenia as well. Hey, good luck with your travels. Thank you very much. You bet. Bye now. Vicki in Phoenix, Arizona, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. We're looking at making our first trip with my husband and I into Eastern Europe. We wanted to get your recommendations on where to go and where the best value is for our dollar. Well, we've been talking about where to go. There's like endless places to do it. All these guys that we're talking to are tour guides. They take uh, our groups around on a, almost a three-week tour. So, mm-hmm. And that's just scratching the surface. I'm sure it's very frustrating for each of them to be skipping a lot of these great sites outside of the capitals and so on. But let's get to your talk about the, the dollar. Would you say the cost of travel is the same in each of your countries, uh, guys? Or how do your countries relate in terms of uh, cost of living? I would say the the travel cost is roughly the same. It may be somewhat higher in Slovenia. It, it's more of a difference, uh, large towns over countryside, where you would see, of course, larger tourist masses congregating in big centers like Prague or Budapest and so on. And, of course, therefore, uh, the prices of the businesses that catered to tourist industry would be much higher. And, of course, there are plenty of smaller towns in the countryside which are just as interesting or even much greater treats that offer prices which are half or even lower. Yeah, I was just with Hansa in Moravia, right? And it's two hours east of Prague by train and a big capital, a very important town that no tourists know about, Olomutz. And Hansa took me to the finest restaurants in town and we didn't need to worry about the cost. It was like laughably cheap compared to Prague where you have to really be careful. Exactly. Well, that sounds wonderful. Hey, good luck on your trip, Vicki. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks for your Take call. Care. John in Gross Point Shores, Michigan. Hi, John. Hi, Rick. How you doing? Great. Thanks for your call. Got a comment or a question for our tour guides? I, I sure do. Um, when we go to Eastern Europe, we're going to be going to like six or seven different countries. Uh, I assume they're not all on the euro or, or none of them are. And what's your recommendation as far as uh, getting money at each stop? Are we going to constantly be changing money or uh, playing with ATMs or what, uh, you know, what do we do? Right. Well, we've got Slovenia, which just joined the euro, and Slovenia is pretty excited about oh, that. And we've got yeah. uh, Hungary and Czech Republic who are sort of proudly and maybe I think they would argue wisely, maintaining their uh, fiscal independence so they can run their own um, budget deficits. Budget deficits. <laughs> and uh, you need to, uh, so you'll need to be changing money just like the old days. One thing I like about Eastern Europe is you don't have euros everywhere. You got Studinky here and, and uh, Zloty there and so on. Studinky, do you know where that's from? Uh, no, not really. Anybody? Bulgaria. That's the little pennies in Bulgaria, Studinky. Oh, and of course, okay. Zloty are in Poland. And I, I like that, but it means you have to change money. You get your cash smartly, I think, from ATM machines, but then invariably you have money left over. And then when you right. come into the new country, you've got all of these money change sharks at the air train stations and so on that basically rip you off if you're not on the ball. Always uh-huh. change money at a place that shows the buying rate and the selling rate and establish that it is within 5 or 10%. If they don't show you the buying and the selling rate, then they're, I think they're hiding something, and that's an obscene profit margin. People change money to make money. They have to make 5% or something, so you should be able to see their buying rate and their selling rate. That's sort of a general tip. Any other advice for changing money smartly from your countries, you guys? No, but I would like to add that it's actually kind of fun to collect these uh, banknotes that are not going to be there much longer. So. Oh. I think it's it's a fun little thing. Get as many as you can and hang on to them because they probably be a nice collection in the future. Very right. good. John, good luck okay. on your trip. Well, thank you very much. Nice thank talking to you. Bye now. Bye. 
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're speaking with Hansa Vihan from Czech Republic, Lavante Naj from Hungary, and Marian Kriskovic from Slovenia. And we're comparing and contrasting these exciting countries for travelers. You know, each country has its own passions. Uh, let's talk sports. Czech Republic. What's the... What's ice the, hockey. Ice hockey. Now, that, why is that? What's the deal with ice hockey? It's a tradition, ice hockey and uh, soccer as well. I, I just found out before Czech Republic even existed, we had a Czech soccer team which played its first game in 1901, and it was the seventh national soccer team in the world. Ice hockey was another big tradition. It was a sport that was brought in the Czech Republic very shortly after it was invented in Canada, and the Czech uh, hockey team was one of the first teams to beat Canada in ice hockey. There's a lot of professional Czech hockey players. There are a lot in, of in, Canada uh, right in, uh, in the NHL. Right. There is over 100. Levante, Hungary. Uh, Hungary, water polo and swimming. We excel in those every four years. The Olympics, we win water polo like clockwork. All right. I would Ma- say Marian in skiing Slovenia. for Slovenia. After all, this is one of the countries where skiing was invented. So uh, skiing is always one of the top things to do and something that practically everyone in the country does. Now, I, I know that tempers flare and uh, there's a lot of competition and overlap. And uh, what about tempers and uh, verbalizing your frustration? I know the Slovenes I've, I've read are not very good at cursing people. No, throughout history, I mean, there's uh, very little record any kind of violence or disorders, or wars, anything like that coming out of the Slovenian people. So I think that's reflected in language as well. Since, yes, we don't actually have any proper cursing words. I think it's pretty much safe for me to use it even on radio. The worst thing you could say would be 300 hairy bears. So Um, when you really want to say, damn it, you say (laughs) 300 hairy bears. I mean, people still do curse, but uh, then they would actually have to borrow words from other languages, usually German, Italian, or other that have plenty for any Plenty kind of, of Italian yeah. words in that case. <laughs> Hungary, we curse uh, a lot, quite unfortunately, well. quite well. And um, uh, we excel in it, I should say. We're also very good at criticizing everything. Hungarians are very critical. But we also are able to snap out of it quickly. In and, the Czech uh, Republic? In Czechs believe in healthy pessimism. They believe that optimism is a dangerous disease. (laughs) Okay. Wow, this has been really fascinating for me. I've enjoyed uh, comparing and contrasting the Czech Republic and Hungary and Slovenia. Can you guys, uh, in your languages, invite people and wish them well if they visit uh, your country? First of all, Hansa Vihan from Czech Republic. Honza z Prahy. Přejte do Prahy. Máme tam dobré pivo a hezké parky. This is uh, Honza from Prague. Come to our city. We have good beer and nice parks on the mountains. And Levante Naj from Hungary. Which basically means, uh, please come visit Hungary. I'd love to have you. All right. And Marian Kriskovic from Slovenia. Come and visit us in Slovenia. You won't have a better time anywhere else. <laughs> and in my language, I want to say thank you very much to each of you. Happy travels. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Up next, we venture to the far east of Turkey with Melika Seval. For several thousand years, this region's been a tumultuous crossroads. The result? A fascinating mix of peoples and cultures. It's a land where men break acorns with their teeth. Pretty girls are called a pistachio. And caravanserais still offer travelers entertainment and shade. It's next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. And you can comment on what you hear in our message board anytime. It's at the radio department at ricksteves.com. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're traveling to Turkey, specifically Eastern Turkey. I'm joined by Meli Saval. Melika Saval, she's a friend of mine who has spent her life really leading tours around Turkey. Boy, what an exciting opportunity to consider Turkey and to consider the eastern half of Turkey. Melika comes to us today from Izmir in Turkey. Meli, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me here. So when we think about Turkey, uh, of course, most people go to the West, and you've got the famous biblical sites, the footsteps of uh, Paul. Uh, You've got Istanbul, and you've got the cruise ports. But there also is a whole eastern half of Turkey that's often overlooked. What do you think about eastern Turkey? Eastern Turkey is so 
beautiful before anything else. If you get 1,000 painters, give them all the paint they want and ask them to put the colors down all day long, they'll be breathless by sunset, but they won't be able to put all the colors that you have in eastern Turkey. Really? The wildflowers are gorgeous. The mountains are wonderful. Everything is beautiful. Now, without overwhelming us with names we've never heard of, can you uh, lay out just briefly what the best, let's say you have two weeks to experience the eastern part of Turkey, what would that itinerary include? You can start in the city where Christians were called Christians first in the history, where St. Paul visited St. Peter in Antioch. And then from Antioch, you can go up to Mount Nemrut, where a megalomaniac wanted to compete with the gods, and he built these huge statues on top of a 9,000-foot mountain, Mount Nemrut. And then you can go down to the border of Turkey with Syria and Iraq, and you can look into Mesopotamia. You can enjoy the black stone walls of Diyarbakir. You can admire the city which was given the honor of being UNESCO's World Heritage, Mardin. And then you can go to Van. In Van, everything is a shade of blue and white. The cats are white, their eyes are blue and green. The lake is blue, but the shores of the lake Van is pure white. The mountains are always covered with white, and you can actually have wine sitting on the fortress looking into the sunset in Van at the sanctuary where people had sacrificed animals in the name of sun. And then you can go to Mount Ararat, and look for Noah's Ark, then end up in Ani, a monumental site from the Armenian era, and you can hit the Black Sea and enjoy the greenery along the shores of the Black Sea. Wow. And you talked about the area right on the border of Iraq and Syria. Uh, that goes back to Old Testament history, doesn't it? Yes. Abraham was uh, born in Urfa. He was mistreated by Nimrud, he walked to Haran, took the people from Haran to Canaan. And the people in Haran, they still speak the same language that they spoke in Canaan. That's the language of Jesus. Is that right? They speak Aramaic? They speak Aramaic. Historically, everybody has always said Mesopotamia, the, the, the cradle of civilization. And the Mesopotamia is basically the Tigris and Euphrates river valleys through Iraq today. Yes, and but Syria. I, but a lot of people, they, the more they dig, the more they find that Anatolia, present-day Turkey, is the cradle of civilization. It's actually the cradle of civilization. And also, if you look at the Bible, the Genesis, where it describes where Garden of Eden is between Euphrates and Tigris, where the gold is, where onyx is, you can see that location is definitely on the Turkish side of Euphrates and mm. Tigris. The headwaters of Euphrates and Tigris start in Turkey. Now, you've been a tour guide basically all your adult life. All my life. You live on the West Coast, Izmir, and you talk about Eastern Turkey with a special warmth. I have a passion for Eastern Turkey. I love it. There's not much tourism. You'd never see well, a tourist that's okay. crowd. okay. I still love it. <laughs> I know. But I've been to Eastern Turkey enough to know that you will never wait in line for, for a site. You won't even feel well, tourism. that's a nice part of it. We don't have that many tourists, so we can enjoy this beauty all to ourselves, and it's great. So let's talk about how it is so rich. Are there still, for instance, hay, dung, and duck economy villages? I mean, you walk around and you see these villages stuck in the past. Has modernity swept all of that sort of medieval charm away, or do you still find that? It's very rich because of its diversity. The richness comes from the difficulty of geography. So mm -hmm. the different ethnic groups could not interrelate with each other. They live in different pockets. So you go from a Kurdish region into Arabic region, into a Georgian region, into an Armenian region. So that gives the wealth, that gives the richness. When you talk about the monetary wealth, no, they don't have the monetary okay, wealth. Okay, so culturally it's rich. Culturally it's rich. Otherwise it's poor agriculture. Otherwise it's poor agriculture. And they do live on duck and dung economy. But now... Since environmentalists are searching for alternative energy, 
Eastern Turkey is going to become very popular because they know how to use two cows' manure into a year's energy source. So is that true? The ancient method of just drying out cow pies to uh, keep your fire going, that's actually a workable modern source of fuel? It is. It's in, been in a country used, with no trees, I mean, it's It's, it's very been important. used since the time of Noah. They're still using it, so it can be modern. Now, one thing fascinating for me in this part of Turkey is the nomadic people. Tell me about the nomadic people of eastern Turkey. The nomadic people are the ones who make their living only raising animals. In geographically difficult place where it is climate-wise hard to grow anything, they have to move their livestock to the warm places so they can feed them. That's why they are still nomadic. And we have two types of nomadic people. We have the Yuruks, who came from Central Asia, and we have the gypsies. Mm -hmm. The ones who came from Central Asia, they are also called the Turkmens. Is the modern sort of vision from the government that you have to put up fences and people have to settle down and and, and go to the regular school? In other words, are these people going against the tide of modernity? They are because uh, their animals are actually a threat to forests. Mm -hmm. So the government restrict where they can go, and education is compulsory, so it's difficult while they're moving to send their children to school. So that lifestyle is becoming too difficult to handle. So the government builds a, of, builds a school and expects them to stay put, but that doesn't fit with their historic livelihood. Most of them, they have their elders live in a village, so the children go and live with the grandparents, go to school in somewhere they join the parents in their nomadic life. Because their livelihood is... Um, Based on raising animals. Is that working today? It is still working, but it's uh, the number of nomads are decreasing tremendously. Okay. We probably now have only 15,000 nomads left. I'm talking, by the way, with Melika Seval, and Melika comes to us today from Izmir, where she lives in western Turkey, and she's a tour guide. Her website is melitour.com, M-E-L-I-T-O-U-R.com. And we've got uh, people giving us a call. We've got Susan in Atlanta. Thanks for your call, Susan. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it was just fascinating listening to you. I hope to make it to Istanbul one day. And um, you talked about being culturally rich. How are the people of the old way handling? Or is it like a general acceptance of the people of the old way with the people of the new modern Turkey? And if not, what would be concerns? Is there some kind of unspoken rivalry or, or, or what? Can you give me some insight on that? The Turkish people respect each other no matter what their socioeconomic background might be. So there is no rivalry at all. But there is a problem of not finding enough jobs once you are in the rural part of Turkey. So they try to move into the big cities. Uh, but no one looks down upon anybody because of who they might be. So is that why there's 14 million people in, in, Istanbul, in Istanbul today? And most yes. of them came from the poor regions of, yes. of Turkey, likely the east, in order to find jobs in the big city. That's correct. Wow. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Melika Seval. Meli runs a tour company. Uh, basically, Meli leads the tours. Melika, we're talking about eastern Turkey, and Mount Ararat is famous because we know Noah's Ark was up there, supposedly. Is it open to tourists now? Can people it actually is- hike on it? Mount Ararat is open to tourists, but they have to get permission. Do people visit it and hike on it? Is it open? Lots of European mountaineers, they go up, but you have to be well trained to go up to Mount Ararat. It's 5,172 meters, which is close to 18,000 feet. Wow, so it's really taller than anything in, In uh, in, in, in Europe, that's for sure. Talk a bit about the Black Sea coast, because this is sort of an underrated, often overlooked part of Turkey. The eastern part of Black Sea coast is completely covered with rainforest and uh, tea plantations, hazelnuts. The amount of hazelnuts produced in the northeast part of Turkey is more than any other producer of hazelnuts, including Oregon, because it rains more there than it does in Portland. And they're different than our hazelnuts because you can crack them. Crack them with your teeth. (laughs) It's a beautiful thing. I was with Melly on a tour through the Black Sea Coast, and as just a friendly gesture, I remember some kid from a farm put a whole sack of hazelnuts. I mean, it was a big sack. He tossed them into the bus, and we were all just breaking the hazelnuts with our teeth. Now, these are Laz people. 
Yes, these are lost people who had come from northern part of the Black Sea, and they still have their own music. They have a strong accent, though they've been living in Anatolia for about 4,000 years or 2,000 years. And they are basically fishermen. If they're not picking tea or hazelnut, then they're hunting, they're fishing in the Black Sea. And they dance like the sardines that they caught in the net. How is that? They wiggle their shoulders. They love to dance. They're just a uh, fun-loving people. Tell me also about Silk Road sites. There's a wonderful history of the Silk Road, and that ties in with caravansarais. The Silk Roads came to the west through Anatolia. One branch of it went to Trabzon. So if you go to the Black Sea part of Turkey, you'll see many stone bridges over wild rivers, which carried the caravans, allowed the caravans to go from one side of the forest to the other one. And my favorite caravan sarai is off Van, near Lake Van. The name is El Aman, which means I've had enough caravan sarai. So coming over Asia, they must have had enough, so they named that caravan sarai, I've had enough, El Aman. And just paint a picture here. It's like the medieval economy, and they've got these camel caravans coming all the way from Mongolia. And every day's march apart, there would be a a fortified place for them to park their camels and store their valuables and tell stories and gather around the fire and, and, and get equipped and then carry on to the next place. Is that, am I painting the picture the way it was? That is the picture. And in fact, the people would listen to what other people had to say in terms of stories or songs or music. And then when they went to another caravan sarai, they would remember what they heard. They would try to tell the story. They might forget the name of the heroes, so they'll make up names. So the same stories with different names will continue from one culture to another. Fascinating thing to study, and there's actually tours built on the Silk Road. I just did 43 days on the Silk Road. 43 43 days? 43 days from Xi'an to Kushadis. Wow. Now, there are so many ways when you're traveling in eastern Turkey to find slices of the culture, but you're not going to find a list of famous museums as much as just being on the ball. And when you see something, stop and check it out. I was going through eastern Turkey with Meli once with a bus, and we found a stadium with must have been 300 high school kids uh, filling the stadium. We stopped the bus. We went inside, and all these kids were thrusting their fist up in the air, screaming, we are a secular nation. We are a secular nation. Tell me about that, Meli, because I was very curious about that. Well, Turkish people take pride in being secular. Since 1924, since caliphate was abolished, Turkish people have faced the difficulty of standing against all the other Muslim countries and prove that Islamic country can be democratic and secular. So we want to keep that. So these high school kids were not against God. They were just celebrating the fragile separation of mosque and state in your country. Yes. Another day, we'd stumble into a town, and we'd find a bunch of people at a funeral. And the whole town was involved in that, and everybody was crowding around to help carry the coffin. What what was that? The meaning of that is that we are all giving a shoulder to share the pain of losing this beloved one. In all of Muslim traditions, you will see that. You might have seen it on Iraqi images. Uh, so when we see a, a commotion around a coffin, everybody's trying to get everyone in Everyone is trying to give a shoulder. So one person might carry the coffin for two, three steps, and then the person in the back will run to the front, and they will give a shoulder to the front. Now, uh, on another experience, I met a guy, and he was looking at a girl and called her a pistachio. (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) That means you're very sweet and very cute. A pistachio. Pistachio. She's quite a pistachio. Yes. And then another person called somebody a Maltese, had a face like a Maltese plum. Oh, God forbid. That means if you are really ugly, then they'll call you Maltese plum. Maltese plum is a beat-up little apricot kind of, right? I kind mean, of. It just looks... It has, uh, naturally, it has black <laughs> marks in it. And when we're traveling around in eastern Turkey, a lot of times you hear, <laughs> when the women are, are celebrating or something, what is that all about? I don't know what that is called, but the Kurdish people generally, and also in Bulgaria, I hear they make that noise with their tongue. When they're joyful, they just... When they're joyful, when when they are stressed as well, when they have uh, problems or mourning, Hmm. they do the same thing. It's just a reflection of emotions. We have Nikhil on the phone in Michigan. Hi, Nikhil. Hi, Rick. Hi, Molly. Hi. Um, My question is regarding Turkey's potential EU membership. 
Um, do the people of Eastern Turkey feel that the EU might possibly threaten their local economies and culture? We don't want to be a member of EU in a way because we don't think that Turkey will be accepted to EU with our norms. And the European community is a club. Certainly they have their own norms and their norms are not necessarily good for Turkey. We don't believe European community is a democratic society or union because only 15 stars represent 29 states. So mm-hmm. we don't want to be a member of it. But if we can be partner, if we can be business partner to Europe, that will be good enough. Okay, thanks for the info. It's a great show. Thanks, Nico. That is interesting, and you don't think that's just your opinion. You think that the majority of Turks now see that membership in the European Union is not in their best interest. It is not in our best interest. Turkey really is emerging as the cultural center of a vast Turkic collection of peoples. I mean, how many many millions of people are Turkic uh, people? The... Turkish people, which West call them Turkic people, live in Turkey, in Azerbaijan, in southern part of Russia, in Central Asia, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Karakal, Pakistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, in the Altai Mountains of Mongolia and western part of China, which is Xinjiang Autonomous uh, State. So it's a huge big population of about uh, half a million. Half a and billion, 72 million lives in Turkey. Half a billion. Half a billion. 500 million Turkic people who speak languages related to Turkish. Ural Altaic languages. And Very do, do they look to, to Istanbul as the cultural capital of that region? They call Istanbul the father of the Turks, and they call their land the mother of the Turks. I have seen that in Central Asia. It's very interesting. They still consider the Turks the father of the Turks. Fascinating. And also Turkish economy is developing because we have very good educated, big population, and Turkey is becoming a good market. So Europe will have to do something with us, but not necessarily take us as a member. I think there's a constructive alternative there where Turkey is a trading partner and a friend of Europe. Yes. Melika Seval coming to us from Izmir in Turkey. Uh, again, Meli's website is melitour.com, M-E-L-I-T-O-U-R.com. Meli, it's always great to talk to you, and happy travels, and we've got to do some more Turkey together sometime soon. Yes, Rick. Thank you. Bye. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Our website has more information about this and other programs in the series, including archived audio and podcast extras. You'll also find a link to post your thoughts for other listeners, to send your email questions for Rick, and to submit an original haiku for our 15 Seconds of Fame department. It's all in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.